0: God, today we ask you to hear our prayers. We ask for healing. In a day where we are so connected to the world, set us apart. In a time of great unrest and uncertainty, we ask for holiness. So search our hearts, renew our minds, and help us love like you love us. Make us holy. Use us to do your will on this earth. God, today we ask that you would restore us. Gather up the bits and pieces of our souls and mend them with your loving hand. Search out those parts that we try to hide from you. Today, God, we invite you in. Our faith is in Jesus Christ. We trust you. May we be set apart for you. May we be holy.
1: Good morning. Glad you all are with us. If you want to grab your Bibles, you can uh, go ahead and do that at this point in time. And uh, if you have your own Bible, that's great. If you want to grab a Bible in the pew back in front of you, that would be wonderful as well. Really glad that uh, all of you are here. So if you want to uh, turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 1, it should be easy to find. That's where we're going to begin, at least uh, this morning. We'll be looking at various texts, but If you want to follow along in your own Bible, Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 27, is where we will begin today. Also, you can follow along on the screen behind me, as we'll be looking at a number of texts this morning. Well, let me do this. Let me quickly catch us up on a conversation that we began uh, at the beginning of, of the month, back on the 5th of March. In my sermon on the 5th of March, I introduced uh, eight additional uh, propositions, uh, eight proposed additions to our constitution that the elders and the deacons and myself are presenting to the church, six of which are doctrinal in nature and two of which are governmental in nature. Back on March the 5th, we talked about the reasons behind these proposed additions, which are both legal And biblical in nature, and I attempted to answer several anticipated, frequently asked questions. So if you haven't, uh, if you weren't there on that Sunday, if you haven't read through that uh, sermon or listened to it, we have a copy available at the Welcome Center. We've been sending it out via email, and if you have iTunes on your phone or your home computer, uh, simply uh, find it there. We encourage you to do that. Then last Sunday, we explained and defended three of the proposed doctrinal statements. So we looked at our proposed statement on marriage, divorce, and redemption. I want you to know that that sermon and its text is available at the Welcome Center. I send it out via email, and it is also on iTunes. So please avail yourself to that. What we're going to do today is to take a look at the final five proposed editions that we're bringing to the, to the, to the table here. And uh, of which we'll be voting on next Sunday. So before we begin, I I just want to let you know that due to uh, the nature of some of the material that we'll be talking about, it may uh, be deemed by some of you parents as maybe not age-appropriate. And so I've asked Justin... Justin, are you here? There he is. He's in the back. Um, if you would like to send your kids out at this point in time, you may certainly do so. You don't have to do that, but we wanted to make that available for you to do that. So Justin's waiting there in the back. We're going to pray, and then we're going to get in uh, to these proposed doctrinal additions. So let's pray together. Father, we pray for your wisdom and discernment as we take a look at these statements that uh, the elders and the deacons and and myself have proposed for this church. Um, Father, we live in uh, in difficult times, and we live in times where there is much confusion and and much twisting of your word and outright unfaithfulness to it. And in the midst of, of this culture at this time, Father, here at Grace Bible Church, we want to be indeed a Bible church that stands uh, unashamedly on your word, that presents the gospel boldly in all of its fullness and goodness, and preaches um, the entirety of your word and all of its tenets, knowing that that which you say we should do and that which you you say we shouldn't do is altogether good, is altogether helpful, both for our holiness and for our joy. You are a good heavenly Father, and you have revealed yourself through your word and in your Son. And on these issues now that we uh, take a look at, both in these proposals and in your word, give us clarity and assurance, we pray, in the name of Jesus and God's people said, Amen. Well, let's begin with uh, looking at our two proposed uh, governmental additional statements. So the first one we suggest, you'll see it on the screen behind me, we suggest that we add it to Article 2 of our Constitution. Now, Article 2 of our Constitution is entitled, The Purpose of Grace Bible Church. If you'd like to see the statement in its fullness, uh, you can check it out at the Welcome Center. We have plenty of constitutions available for you. Let's, let's begin by reading the uh, proposed edition. It reads this way, the statement of faith given in Article 3 of the Constitution, that is, is a guide to every member of the congregation in outlining the key doctrines based on the Holy Scriptures to which we attest to be true and to which we align ourselves to practice to the best of our ability through the power of the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, as members of this congregation, we submit ourselves to the governing principles of this church as outlined in Article 4. So that is our first proposed governmental statement. And by adding this proposal, uh, this statement, if you will, we aim to do three things. So really, there are three aims in this statement. Number one, we aim to affirm. We aim to affirm that those who join the church in membership believe to be true our articles of faith, which are found in the aforementioned Article 3. So we want to make the connection that those who are members affirm our doctrinal statement. Number two, we aim to affirm that those who join the church in membership agree to practice or live out its articles of faith, which are also found in Article 3 to the best of their abilities. In other words, we want members to both agree with our doctrinal statement and to say we are going to join together as members of this church to live those things out. Number three, we aim to affirm that those who join the church in membership agree to submit to the governing principles of the church, which are spelled out in Article 4. Article 4 in our Constitution, you can check it out at the Welcome Center, speaks to the functioning of the church. So what do elders do? What do deacons do? How do you hire a pastor? Not fire a pastor. How do you hire a pastor? What are the members' responsibilities? Those sort of things. The the functioning of the church. So, that is our proposed statement to Article uh, 2 of our Constitution. We have a second proposed edition, and to that one, we propose it be placed in Article 4 of our Constitution, which is entitled, The Responsibilities of the Elders. So, let's read together the proposed statement. <clears throat> the Board of Elders shall oversee the spiritual development of the church, guide the church in maintaining the general practice of adhering to the statements of faith and to serve as the spiritual authority in defining all matters of doctrine and church practices. So the aim of this statement The aim of this statement is to clarify and identify the elders of the local church as the church's spiritual authority in defining matters of doctrine, that is what we believe as a church, and practice, that is what we do or how we live out that doctrine as a church. So I just want to make clear that if you check out uh, the Constitution there at the Welcome Center, there is an additional... Uh, line that has already been in the Constitution. So following this proposed uh, line, it would read this way, and I quote, this includes the leadership, uh, this includes leadership in the areas of evangelism and discipleship, missions, Christian education, pastoral ministries, music, worship, and youth ministry. So just kind of clarifying the areas uh, that the elders oversee. Again, the reason for adding this particular statement is to fulfill the Christian Legal Society's recommendation that a local church have, have maximum legal protection. And I just want to read a section from what they say. They say, quote, The governing document should be as clear, should be clear as to where the spiritual authority to make decisions on different issues resides. As a general rule, they write, courts are not supposed to second-guess church's spiritual decision-making. So it is important to make clear who has the spiritual authority on an issue. So that's part of the, the reason why we want to add uh, the clarifying statements about the roles of the elders. So these are the two proposed governmental uh, additions that we uh, propose add. I want to spend the remainder of our time looking at the three additional doctrinal statements that we uh, are proposing. Last week, we looked at our, our, uh, our statement on marriage and divorce and redemption. This morning, I want to tackle our, our, our statements on gender identity, sexual immorality, and celibacy. And as we read the scripture from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and as we saw the video about, about holiness, that is the thrust behind what we're suggesting here. As we look at our statements on gender, and on sexual behavior, and on celibacy, Our goal is to be obedient to the scriptures, 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and many, many others. So, with that said, let's look at our statement on gender identity. Gender identity. We write this. We believe that God created mankind in his image, male and female, who are genetically different, but with equal personal dignity. We encourage members to affirm their biological sex and to refrain from any and all attempts to physically change, alter, or disagree with their biological sex. Then we list a few references of which we will see in just a moment. So I want to tackle this statement one sentence at a time. In the first sentence, what we try to do is summarize succinctly what we feel like is the Bible's core teaching on gender. And then in the second statement, we have two specific applications, two specific implications that then flow from the Bible's teaching on gender. So let's read again the first sentence. We believe that God created mankind in his image, male and female, who are genetically different, but with equal personal dignity. So in this sentence, notice there is both gender equality, And there is gender diversity, right? Gender equality and gender diversity. That is, all of mankind, every human being that is ever born into this world is made fully and completely in God's image and therefore has equal personal dignity. And God made each of us genetically different. God made the human species as male and as female gender equality, and gender diversity. We see this clearly in Genesis chapter 1. So I hope you're there. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 27, and we'll look at 27 and 28. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful in number and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And that is indeed the word of God. Here we see that both male and female share in the image of God, right? Little boys and little girls, men and women, all of us, share in the image of God we are made in his likeness and because of that all people are equally endowed with dignity and respect and are fully human and therefore are valuable to God but not only that in addition we see in this text gender uh, equality and we also see gender diversity right as God created two biologically distinct genders male and female. So it's not just that God, generally speaking, made mankind in his image, though he did. He made us male, and he made us female. Male and female, he created them. So let's take a look now at the second sentence that we propose, which speaks about two applications or two ramifications of the first. The second sentence reads this way, "...we encourage members to affirm their biological sex and to refrain from any and all attempts to physically change, alter, or disagree with their biological sex. By this we mean that we oppose efforts to alter one's bodily identity, to refashion it to conform to one's perceived gender identity." Since all are created to reflect the image of God, since all of us are created to reflect the image of God, and we reflect that image in our femininity, in our masculinity, that is, in our biological gender, to not affirm that God-given gender, or to attempt to physically alter it, then is to distort that image in us personally. So, with that being said, I just want to add a couple additional comments We grieve the reality of fallen humanity. We grieve that we live in a sinful, fallen world of which we are affected holistically. Our bodies are affected by the fall. Our minds are affected by the fall. Our wills are affected by the fall. All of us, we are all affected by the fall, and we grieve this fallenness, which results in, in things like biological or psychological manifestations of, of gender distortion or confusion. And, and, and in realizing it, and, and sympathizing with that, we point all people towards the resurrection of the dead, we point all people towards the redemption of our bodies, which is available through faith in Jesus Christ. Not only that, but we extend love and compassion to those who are distressed by a, a conflict within their biological sex and their gender identity. We love those people. We have compassion on them. And as fellow image bearers of God, we treat them with full respect. And we as a church, we condemn any acts of abuse, whether physical or verbal, any bullying at all. All people are made in God's image, worthy of love, worthy of respect. So that is our statement then on gender identity. Let's move now to our statement on sexual immorality. Again, you can see the statement on the screen behind me. It reads as such, we believe that sexual acts outside, the mar- outside of marriage are sinful and should not be practiced by members who are instead to resist and refrain from any and all sexual acts outside of the definition of marriage. Examples include, but are not limited to, such practices uh, such as cohabitation, adultery, fornication, incest, zoophilia, pornography, prostitution, pedophilia, polygamy, or same-sex acts. And we have a whole list of scripture references as well. So just like we did with the prior statement, let, let me just take it one statement at a time. Right. Let's take a look then at the first statement. The opening half of our statement reads again this way. We believe that sexual acts outside of marriage are, are sinful and should not be practiced by members who are instead to resist and refrain from any and all sexual acts outside of the definition of marriage. So here's why we begin where we begin. We begin by establishing that the marriage covenant is the only biblical biblically permissible, the only God-honoring, and the only human flourishing avenue for sexual activity. We have to begin there. That's where the scripture begins. And so once we begin there, then we state that as a result of that, then members of the congregation should then not engage in sexual activity outside of the definition of marriage. The Bible, in fact, uh, repeatedly calls for Christians, for believers to not engage in, quote, sexual immorality is one translation. Another translation might say fornication, depending upon the translation, but the Greek word is the same. The Greek word for uh, what is translated in the Bible sexual Im- immorality or fornication is the, the Greek word por- porneia. And you can see where we use our words even in English that come from this Greek word. Uh, It's used in the Bible and it's used outside of the Bible as a a bit of a catch-all word. It's a general word. And it describes in the Bible and outside the Bible a whole host of sexual acts that are outside of marriage. So think of it this way. When we think of this term, this term sexual immorality or fornication, porneia, the Bible defines sexual sin by what it is not. The Bible defines sexual sin by what it is not. That is, it is not sex inside of marriage. Therefore, it is sexual immorality or fornication. Let me just uh, give you a few scriptures here. Just a brief sampling. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. Paul writes, flee from sexual immorality. There's our word. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 reads this way. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. There is our word again. Hebrews chapter uh, 13, verse 4 reads this way. Marriage should be honored by all. <clears throat> and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexual, sexually immoral. See, thankfully, God doesn't just speak, though, in general terms. He gives us this term pornea as kind of a catch-all phrase. But not only does he do that, but we see in Scripture that there are specific acts that the Bible does not uh, condone. In fact, the Bible condemns. So within Scripture, we have this general term But then we also see specific examples, right? Uh, So the last half, then, of our statement, which we we return to now, just gives a few of these specific practices. So we write, examples include, but are not limited to, such common practices as cohabitation, adultery, fornication, incest, zoophilia, pornography, prostitution, pedophilia, polygamy, or same-sex acts. Let's just work our way really briefly and quickly through these cohabitation, which is the first on the list, simply is two people living together as if they were married. And fornication, which is second on the list, is intercourse between two unmarried persons. And typically, these things go hand in hand. Next, after that, we talk about adultery. Adultery, of course, is intercourse with someone other than your spouse. It's addressed in a whole host of texts. Leviticus 18, Exodus 22, Matthew 5, Matthew 19, and many, many others as well. The next on the list is incest, which is, of course, uh, sexual intercourse with a close relative, which is prohibited, particularly in the Old Testament. Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, Deuteronomy 22, and even in the New Testament, we see 1 Corinthians 5. Paul talks about this in the Corinthian church. Zophilia is next on the list. Your translation may say... Uh, bestiality, which of, of course is, is, is intercourse with animals. It's banned in places like Leviticus 18, Exodus 22, Leviticus chapter 20, and Deuteronomy chapter 27. Next on the list is pornography, which is simply sexually uh, explicit Videos or photographs or even writings, things of the like, whose purpose is to elicit sexual arousal. And I think this would be covered quite clearly uh, in in a text that we looked at just a few weeks ago in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, where Jesus talks about lust, right? I think that would cover what we see here in pornography. Next is prostitution, which of course is intercourse for money. It's borrowed in places like Leviticus 19, Leviticus 21, Leviticus 23, and 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Next in the rundown is pedophilia. It's it's a sex act by an adult with a child. And I think that would be included in the Bible's uh, excluding rape, as an acceptable practice. We see that all over Scripture. Deuteronomy 22, Judges 19, Judges 20, 2 Samuel 13. And we could really go on and on and on and on. And the next on the list is polygamy. Of course, polygamy is having more than one spouse at a time. And that is prohibited in Scripture by God's very definition, his defining what marriage is for us. In Genesis two twenty-four and in other places, right? Marriage is one man, one woman. Next, we see, uh, finally, same-sex acts prohibited in the Old Testament and the New Testament by both men and women. It's addressed in places like Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, and as we move into the New Testament, Romans uh, chapter 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and 1 Timothy chapter 1. So, So here's the deal with the list, right? The list in the Bible, as you read through it, is not exhaustive the list that we give is not exhaustive because here's the deal. Mankind finds new ways to sin all the time. And we find new ways to sin sexually all the time. So the list is not exhaustive. It's, it's meant to be a example. Since God has established marriage as the only place for sexual intimacy, we know that anything outside then of his definition is outside of his will. So that is our uh, recommended proposal on sexual immorality. Let's close then by looking at a a third and final definition, that of celibacy. That of celibacy. See, if marriage then is the only context that God approves for sexual intimacy, then what are the God-honoring options for the single person? That's what we want to address. If you're single and you're a Christian, what are God-honoring and uh, good-for-you practices as it relates to your sexuality. Well, we write this. We believe that the Holy Scriptures grants two life-enhancing options for human sexual behavior. Number one, the conjugal one-flesh marital union of one man and one woman. And number two, celibacy. We write this. Either is a gift from God, given as he wills, for his glory and the edification of those who receive and rejoice in his gift for them. We seek to celebrate and to affirm celibacy and faithful singleness. Friends, let me just say, the teaching uh, in the American church on singleness and celibacy, in my humble opinion, is, uh, is very scarce. You just don't hear it these days. But the Bible speaks of it Often, and we need to learn from it. One of those places that the Bible speaks of it is First Corinthians chapter 7. So if you want to turn in your Bibles there, you certainly may, to your New Testament. First Corinthians 7. We'll be taking a look at a few verses there out of Paul's writing in First Corinthians chapter 7. As Paul talks about marriage, and he talks about singleness, and he talks about celibacy. So, as you're turning there, I just want to make clear that there are two life-enhancing and God-glorifying avenues for human sexual behavior. Marriage and celibacy. Christians either have sex when they are married or they don't have sex at all. That's what the scripture teaches. And not only does it teach that, but it teaches that both are a gift from God and that both are altogether good. Friends, let me just speak frankly. This runs and butts up right against the thinking of our culture. You won't hear that said on a talk show. You won't read it in the newspaper. You won't see it on TV. What I'm sharing with you, which I feel is biblical, you most likely won't hear in popular media. Friends, we come to church to hear the very word of God. This runs up against what our culture is saying. In fact, our culture tells us a lie. And this is what our culture says. Our culture says that if we want to be fully human, if we want to be all that God has made us to be, if we want to be all that we are meant to be, it says that, that we can't be fully human unless we participate in sexual activity. We aren't, it, the culture says, fully human unless we can participate In sexual activity. Friends, that is a lie. It is a lie. Because let me, let me just remind you of something. Whose example do we follow as Christians? Jesus's, right? We call ourselves Christians from Christ. Now let's just think for a moment about the life of Christ. The life of Christ says otherwise. Jesus, was he fully human? Please shake your head at me. Yes, Jesus was fully human. And he was fully God, but he was fully human. And friends, he lived the fullest human life possible, including in his sexuality. Did Jesus ever have sex? The answer is no. Jesus never had sex, and yet he is our example and was fully human and in every way. Friends, sex in marriage and celibate singleness are both gifts from God to to be joyfully received and faithfully lived out. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 7. Paul begins there in verses 1 and 2. He affirms the inherent goodness of singleness and of celibacy, as well as the inherent goodness of sex within marriage. Notice, now for the matters that you wrote about, See, apparently the Corinthian church wrote Paul a letter with some questions, and Paul wrote them back. They wanted to know about sex and singleness, and and so do we. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But, since sexual immorality, there's our word again, is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman with her own husband. So... Paul begins here by affirming that singleness and celibacy is good. He said it's, it's a good thing. He says, but listen, if you burn in passion with members of the opposite sex, you want to get married, and you want to have sexual relationship with your spouse, that's great. You do that too. After giving them some parameters, he talks in verses 3 through 6, uh, Five, about some parameters for the sexual relationship in marriage. He then returns to his original train of thought in verse 6. And in verse 6, he says that, he he clarifies. He says, I'm not commanding you if you're single to get married. I'm allowing it. And he says that both marriage and singleness is a gift from God. Verse 6, I say this as a concession, not as a command. And then notice verse 7. I wish that all of you were as I am, that is, single and celibate, But each of you has your own, what? Gift. Each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift and one has that. So friends, we believe that the scriptures grants two life-enhancing options for human sexual behavior. Marriage and celibacy. Both are good. Both are a gift to us to be pursued faithfully by God's people. So, we're done here. Here's how I'd like to close. I just want to say that I appreciate each of you and all of you and your church attendance the past few weeks. I know that sometimes the things that we're talking about can be a little challenging, but that's good. I appreciate that you allow me to have allowed me to try my best to be clear on what we're presenting, to be compassionate in how I'm presenting it. And and my prayer is that I I would be truthful to the Word of God and what we have said and the Scriptures that undergird these statements. So, please, take some time. If you've missed a sermon, they're available at the Welcome Center. You can check them out on iTunes. Please, please, check out the proposed statements in in their... um, in their context within the Constitution, or we have a separate page and we have the proposed uh, amendments just there separate. Please pick up any and all of that, read through it, pray through it, talk about it. Myself and the church, the the leadership of the church, we strongly believe that these proposals are both biblical and that they're good and that they're helpful to us as a church in many, many ways, legally and otherwise. So we ask that you would join us again next Sunday on the 26th. We'll be voting on the proposals. Thanks for letting me do this. We're going to pray and then we're going to be done. So, uh, Dan, one of our elders, I'm going to ask you to come pray for us, pray for our vote, and then uh, we'll be dismissed. So, why don't you grab the mic and do that? Thanks.
0: Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us the Bible. You've given us clear directive for so many areas of our life. Lord, you give us freedom in a lot of places. But others, Lord, you, you tell us this is the way it needs to be because I love you and because I want the best for you. And, Lord, uh, we thank you that we have this opportunity to have clear teaching on this. Lord, we uh, want to please you by forming our church around your will, Lord. Uh, Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity to be here and worship with you. We ask you to bless our week and bring us all back here next Sunday. In your name, amen.